Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. You know, just the the, uh, the level of talent the Lord has given us musically at this church is pretty pretty astonishing, honestly. Um, we're very blessed. Let's just thank them again for all the work they put in. Just fantastic job. And, and I can assure you they do it for the glory of the Lord with a heart of worship, and we're just so thankful and so grateful. So let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for just an incredible time of worship singing praises to your name, Father, with, with all the different voices that have been lifted up, the instruments, Lord, uh, the children. But so many things to be thankful for this morning. So many things to rejoice about. So many things to uh, just praise your name for, Father. This, this has been, uh, in, in human terms, our best effort, Father, to glorify you and to praise you. I pray it's been honoring to you. I pray, Father, that the things we've said have been truthful and that, uh, Lord, we've truly worshipped in our hearts. Father, I pray we would take that spirit of worship now into the reading and study of your word, Father, as we just understand that these are your words given to us. These aren't just random words, Father. They're words that have deep, profound meaning. I pray that as we study them and try to understand them, I pray, Father, that you would just keep the distractions of the world away and let us just focus and understand your truth. Lord, how we should live it, how we should model it, how we should demonstrate it to the world. And Father, we'll praise your name for all that you do over the next little while. Father, just allow us through the power of the Spirit, as we study your word, to be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. As you're finding the book of Acts, I'd like you to ponder a question just for a second. If I were to ask you to name the most important event in history, what would you say? Now, there are probably a lot of different ideas. You probably need to think through it for a few minutes and, and maybe come up with a top five. It may be difficult to choose the most important. I, I would say from, from a, a, a scriptural standpoint, and I would argue from a, a real-world standpoint, something related to Christ. Probably the crucifixion of Christ would be the number one event. Uh, some would argue maybe the birth of Christ, something related to Jesus. If I said think uh, secularly or, or, or not related to Scripture, you may name uh, some war, American Revolution or World War II or something that some politician did, a, a law enacted or the Constitution, Magna Carta, whatever. But I would say to you, as we kind of think for a second about the most important events in history, that what we're going to study this morning, I just want to put this in perspective, what we're going to study this morning, I believe, has to be in probably the top five or ten most important events in history. It's the salvation, the conversion of Paul. Now Paul is very well known, we've heard of him, but when you think about what Paul accomplished, and maybe more importantly, the strategic way that Christ called him and used him to shape and mold the modern church uh, based on his teaching, you have to say Paul was pretty important. In fact, you know that Paul took the gospel, we'll see this later in the book of Acts, Paul's going to take the gospel to Asia and to Europe, Paul is going to write the, the majority of the New Testament. 
Testament. Other than Jesus, Paul is probably the most well-known person in the Bible. And, and so the importance and, and significance of his salvation cannot be understated. Now I want you to understand this morning as we walk through this together, we're talking about the salvation of the Apostle Paul. We're talking about what the Lord did in his life. And we're going to look specifically at the calling Christ placed upon Paul. But as we always do, or as we should always do, we're trying to figure out what, what does this mean in my life? It's not some abstract study of a guy that lived 2,000 years ago. It's not some abstract study of a salvation experience. It's the real account of the salvation of the Apostle Paul that resonated in his life in the hearts of the first century church and really still resonates in our life today as we try to figure out what do we do with this truth in our lives? How do we apply this and use this for the glory of the Lord? Warren Wiersbe, who many of us are familiar with, an old famous pastor and theologian said this, perhaps the greatest event in church history after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was the conversion of Saul, the leading persecutor of the Christians. We'll get there here in just a minute. We are continuing our study this morning through the book of Acts, a sermon series that we've entitled From Ordinary to Extraordinary. Saul is a fantastic example. In fact, when we named this, he was one of the people we kind of thought about of the Lord taking an ordinary person, somebody who'd never really accomplished anything for the kingdom of the Lord. In fact, Saul hated believers, persecuted them. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And the Lord, through the power of the Spirit, did something extraordinary through Paul. And so we're trying to figure out, and we're trying to apply, we're trying to understand, Lord, how are you speaking to me? How are you using me? What extraordinary thing do you want me to do in my life for the sake of the kingdom right now? Now just a note, before we jump into this, we're going to go ahead and read here in just a second. Saul is the same person as Paul. For some of you that may not be familiar with this story, I just want to give you just a little bit of background to make sure you understand. It's the same guy. Saul is his Jewish name. He was born a Jew, a Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. Some of you probably know that. Raised up in uh, religious truth and understanding of the Jewish people. Paul is his Greek name. And so in our account this morning, he's referred to as Saul. And I just want to kind of dispel maybe a misnomer. Some people think that the Lord changed his name from Saul to Paul after conversion. That's not actually the case. That's not what the Bible teaches. Instead, what we see is that Saul was kind of his old name, his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name. So as we read it and we talk about Saul, we're talking about the Apostle Paul that writes the majority of the New Testament. I'm going to do my best to remember to say Saul, but if I happen to say Paul, we're talking about the same person. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 9. We're going to begin at verse 1. We're going to read 19 verses because I want you to kind of get the, the whole account here in, in one kind of lump sum and understand. And then we're going to go back through and delve in it more closely together. Acts chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1. We have it on the screens for you as well. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Right? Saul is, is accusing Christians. He's finding Christians. He's arresting Christians. Persecuting Christians. For, from a worldly standpoint, now let's just be clear. This is probably the last person you or I would choose to do something incredible for the Lord. This is probably the last person we would choose to be extraordinary for the things of Christ. In fact, we're going to see in just a few minutes the people that knew Saul actually thought he should be the last person that Christ would use. So he goes to the high priest, verse 2, and he asks for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, now those are believers, those are Christians, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wants to go out and arrest these people to bring them in and put them in jail, persecute them. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom, are you, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now just to be clear, this is a different Ananias that we studied several chapters ago. That Ananias lied about what he gave. The Holy Spirit killed him. Different guy here, obviously. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Now verse 11. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, now listen, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Right? So Ananias is like, listen, I know who this guy is. He's a bad dude. I don't want to deal with him. Please don't send me to do this. Right? This is the last person we would expect the Lord to do extraordinary things through. But verse 15, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Right? The Lord's got a plan. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has, come, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, he regained his sight, then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now let's stop there. This is an important account. It's strategic. Uh, the Lord uses Paul eventually to do some pretty incredible things. In fact, this account of salvation is so significant that Luke gives it to us three different times. He gives it to us in Acts chapter 9. He's going to give it to us again in Acts 22. And then finally in Acts 26. So three different times we're told about the salvation experience of Saul. Now I want to do something a little bit different this morning. It's not something we typically do. But because they're three different accounts of the same story, they're all told from a basically the same perspective. They all give a little bit different uh, details and some things uh, that are important uh, that we find in one, not the other. And so I want to do something a little bit different this morning. And instead of examining the account in chapter 9, which is just kind of a general summary, I want to fast forward to Acts chapter 26. Because in Acts 26, Paul gives the same account, but in it, he includes his commissioning from the Lord, which is really important. And so we're going to understand the story in Acts chapter 9 by studying this morning Acts chapter 26. So flip over to Acts chapter 26. 
We have it on the screen as well. The same account, the same story, but Paul's going to give us, we'll point it out here in just a few minutes, a little more detail and some specific things that we really want to get into this morning. So Acts chapter 26, we're going to look at just a few verses, beginning in verse 12. We have it on the screen. Again, this is, this is a different account, uh, much later historically, if we're thinking about a historical timeline. Paul's going to give this same account now to King Agrippa. An opportunity to reach him for Christ. He's going to share the same story. But in this account, he's going to give the commissioning of the Lord. Now that's important for Paul because he's going to be commissioned to go and do some pretty incredible things. But we're going to relate it to our lives and our commissioning and what we ought to be doing 2,000 years later. So verse 12 of Acts 26, Luke tells us, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. Again, Paul's telling the story. With the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, he's speaking to King Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven, same account as, verse, as, chapter, nine, as chapter 9, brighter than the sun, it shone around me those who, and, and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goad. Now that's an, that's an insertion there. Paul doesn't tell that part of the story in chapter 9. A goad was basically a long stick with a pointed end and the farmer would kind of poke at the oxen right to get him to go a little bit faster. And, and when they would kick at that, they would kick at that goad and that, that stick would, would kind of stab them in the back of the leg and the more they kicked, the more it hurt them. Right, the Lord's saying to Paul, listen, you're, you're kicking at me, you're fighting against me, it's not really going to accomplish anything for you, right? So verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Right? Same story. Get up. I've got a plan for you. You're going to go. I'm sending you out to share the word. Now, verse 18 is going to be what we're going to focus on this morning, because this is the call from the Lord. This is the commissioning of Saul and exactly what he's called to do. Verse 18. Here's what the Lord calls him to do. I'm sending you to, verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now let's stop there. We've read a lot of stuff, a lot of accounts, a lot of this story of what the Apostle Saul went through and how he was saved. I want to stop now and really take a look at verse 18 of Acts 26 and pull some truth and try to understand not only kind of what we're commissioned to do and what we're called to do, but what happens in salvation because this is what Paul's going through. Right? So here's the first truth based on Acts 26, 18. I want you to get number one. When we trust in Christ... Our eyes are opened. Now we think about eyes in a physical sense, and that's true. Paul certainly experienced the physical blindness, but I'm thinking here, and the Lord is talking more here, about spiritual blindness. The Lord wants us to understand that before we find Christ, before we're saved, before we trust in Jesus, our spiritual eyes are closed. Right, so that there, there are things for the unbeliever that exist that he or she is unable to see. Right, when our eyes are spiritually blinded, we can't always see the things of the Lord. 
Now, now the Lord is calling Saul out. He's sending him out. He wants him to go to the Gentiles. So again, we've been thinking about Acts 1-8 and the growth of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right, we've seen the Christians that have moved out of the city of Jerusalem because of persecution. We've talked about Philip. We've talked about all that he accomplished. Now we've seen Paul walking out of the city to go to Damascus. It's interesting how the Lord is going to use uh, Paul now as he goes to Damascus to be saved. And then he's going to send him out to the Gentiles. But I want you to notice who's talking in verse 15. This is important. Pull up 26.15 because this is the key for Paul's understanding of, of who's calling him. And he said, this is Paul, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now how many of you looking at your Bibles, that verse is in red? Anybody? A few of you? You see some of you? Yep. So just to be clear, we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, the idea of biblical interpretation and understanding some things that are really important. Uh, red letter Bible just basically means these are the words of the Lord. Many of you probably know that. Right? These are the words of Christ. It was not part of the original, right? So the guy didn't uh, have a, a black quill, and then when he got the words of Jesus, he pulled out the red quill and started writing. That's not in the original. But we understand it to be the words of Christ, and so we put it in red to help us understand. Right? Paul is going to refer to himself as an apostle, one who witnessed and saw what Christ accomplished based on this conversation. Like Jesus is saying to him, listen, I'm Jesus. I'm the guy you've been persecuting. By the way, he doesn't say it, but by the way, Paul, I'm still alive. Because if I was dead, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. So I've, I've risen from the grave. I'm calling you and I'm sending you. Pull up verse 17 if you would. I, I love the way it ends. He says, listen, I'm delivering you from the people, from, whom, from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, right? So the Lord says to Paul, listen, not, not only am I not dead, not only do I have a plan for you, but I'm going to send you out to the Gentiles, which are basically non-Jews. Right? We have the Jewish people and everybody else is called a Gentile. I'm sending you out, Paul, a Jewish man, into the world, into the Gentiles, so you can reach them for Christ. Now, I did a sermon series, it's probably been a year or two ago, I don't remember how long ago, about the idea of sent. And we kind of walked through the scripture and we talked about all the instances in the Bible where we've been sent out by the Lord. This is just another example. The Lord's saying to Paul, listen, I'm sending you to reach these people. And, and so, again, as we try to kind of apply this to our lives and, and understand what the Lord wants us to do, the question we ought to be asking in this particular verse is, what, what's the Lord sending us to do? Right? I say this all the time, but Christianity is not a spectator sport. You're not called just to kind of sit and soak and watch from a distance from the sidelines. You need to kind of be on the field, uh, involved in the game. And if you're not, then you're missing something. If you're not, you're, you're missing a clear calling of the Lord. Uh, you're, you're probably missing what he's sending you to do. You're missing this great opportunity because we, we see this all through Scripture. We, we see it with the prophets in the Old Testament. We see it with Jesus in the New Testament. We see it with Paul now in the book of Acts. We have been sent out, called out, charged with reaching people for Christ. But here's the interesting thing, and this ties back into kind of the sermon series title, what we've been talking about the last several weeks. Paul, or Saul in this particular context, was a Jewish man who at this point hated believers. In fact, he, he, he really went out and tried to find believers and arrest believers and persecute believers and he did everything he could to stop this movement of Christ. He, he was the last person we would expect the Lord to do something through, right? He's the last person we would expect to do something extraordinary for Christ. And so, so we asked the question, what happened to him? 
What happened to Paul that changed his outlook? Very simply, based on the truth of God's Word, his eyes were opened. He was blind, and now he could see. How many of you guys wear glasses or some sort of corrective lenses? A lot of you, more than half probably. I've worn them since I was really young. And I've got really bad eyesight. If, if I took my contacts out right now, I couldn't read anything. I would see just a big blur. I can't read the big E. That's how bad it is. I know it's an E, so I kind of act like I can see it, but I can't really see it. Like, I'm so bad at night when I take my contacts out, I can't see the, uh, the, the alarm clock, the time on the bedside mirror. I'm going to have to hold it up. I can read up close, praise the Lord. So if you were to come to my house late at night, I'd be reading about like this. It looks really silly, but I can read. But I can't see anything. I'm just unaware of what's out there because my vision is so bad. But when I put in my contacts like you, or I put on my glasses like you, the world becomes very clear. And I can see faces, and I can see people, and I know what's going on. It's kind of like that spiritual. Right? Before, people are unbe- before people are believers, while they're still unbelievers, they just can't see. They're just unaware of what's out there. It's not that it doesn't exist. It, it does exist, but they just can't see. And here's the scary thing about most believers, and you have to understand this when you're witnessing or sharing your faith with somebody. Most believers, maybe all believers, don't know they can't see. Did you know that? That really ought to help you in your understanding. We get frustrated sometimes with people and we don't understand why they don't believe or why they don't see the truth and we're trying to show them truth because through our eyes, this is truth. Through our eyes, this is foundational. Through our eyes, this is how we ought to live. For the unbeliever, they have no real idea. They can't see it. And so the Lord gives Paul this incredible gift, right? He removes the scales, right? He, he removes, the, the Bible says something like scales fell off. That's a, a physical sense of what happens, but it's a picture of the spiritual, right? The, the blinders were removed. Paul could see his life changes. So, so just for a point of application in our lives, like what are we doing in our lives now to help people see the truth? Well, what are we doing to open the eyes of people? Our lifestyle may be the biggest thing we can do. Did you know that? Like the way you live, the way you conduct yourself, the way you act at work, the way you act at school, students, the way you teach, all the different way we coach. Our lifestyle oftentimes, the way we treat our spouse, that's the best way a lot of times for the world's eyes to be opened up. Because if they see somebody that calls themselves a believer that doesn't really live for Christ, the scales are going to stay on because there's no difference between you and me. But if they see a believer that lives for Christ, that's sold out for their faith, that's marriage is real, that's walk is genuine, the scales begin to come off, the Lord opens their eyes, and things change. Notice what happens differently. Pull up verse 18, if you would, from please. Acts 26, the call of Paul is to open their eyes so that they may, what? Turn from darkness to light. Here's the second truth. When we trust in Christ... We turn from the darkness to the light. Now, this is a radical transformation. I I fear, I've preached about this sometimes, and I fear this, frankly, in my own life sometimes. I fear that so many of us are so far away from that radical transformation. It was so many years ago that we've forgotten about it. We've kind of gotten over it. You know, it was a big deal then, and it meant some to us then, but, but years pass, and, and for some of us, decades have passed, and we don't really see the significance anymore. We, we need to be reminded on a pretty, radical, a pretty regular basis just the radical nature of this change, the radical nature of turning from the darkness to the light. 
Because once those scales come off, once the eyes have been opened, that person is kind of living in a different place, aren't they? They're in a different world. They see things differently. They understand things differently. They, they respond differently. But I want you to notice a couple things about verse 18. Pull it back up if you would for me, please. The Lord says the call is to open their eyes so that they may... What's the next word? Turn. Look at it again. To open their eyes so that they may... What's the word? Turn. Right? There's this sense of movement here. Like if, if you did faith training with us years ago, we did faith evangelism and, and many of us were trained and, and I was trained and went out on visits. And if you remember, we used to talk about the word repent. And when we told somebody they had to repent, what's the word we use? You remember? Turn. Right? You, you're, you're walking uh, to, to the world. You're, you're walking in sin and in darkness. You have to turn. So, so repentance is not just a feeling bad about what you've done. That's part of the process. There is an emotional side. But there has to be an actual turning. You, you can't say, I'm going to repent of this sin, and then nine years later you're still mired in the same sin. You didn't really repent. You may have felt bad, maybe you were convicted, but there's no true repentance until you actually turn, right? So you've got to open their eyes so that they can turn from the darkness to the light and from what? This is fascinating to me. The power of what? Satan, right? So, so they've actually got to turn away from the world and away from sin and away especially from the power of Satan. I think we greatly underestimate the power of Satan in our lives. I think many of us are oblivious to the fact that there is an actual enemy that seeks to kill and destroy and wreck families and destroy churches and lead people astray. Now, scripturally, we see that. It's very clear in the Bible. Over and over and over we see it. But I think in our world, in our life, some, for some reason we've kind of set that aside. We either ignore it or don't believe it or don't really apply it to our lives. But the scripture is clear. Listen, we need to help people so their eyes can be open, so they can turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God. So just to remind you of the power of Satan, I want to give you three things scripturally that the enemy does and three verses that go with it. We don't have a lot of time to go through, but I, I want you to see biblically the power of Satan. Here's the first thing Satan does. He blinds our eyes from seeing the light of the gospel. He's actively walking around trying to blind you so you can't see. Right? The, the non-believer, he's obviously very involved. I would argue that the believer, he still wants to try to blind you so you can't see the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, listen to this, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right, so, so the lost person is battling, they don't know it, they're battling the enemy who's trying to blind them and trick them into not being able to see what's really out there. We need to battle against this as well. Because the enemy would like to do nothing more than to blind you in your walk and destroy you. Here's the second thing the enemy does. He lies to us. John chapter 8 verse 44, speaking of the enemy, you are the father of the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was, this is the enemy, he, this is Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
So you've got this enemy that is attacking us, that is blinding us, that is lying to us. And here's what he does that's probably the worst and the, things that, the thing that affects us the most. Number three, he makes sin look really good to us. Right? He disguises himself as an angel of light. Right? Nobody kind of starts down the path of sin thinking, you know, I'm going to do this, it's going to lead to this, this, and this, and in two years I'm going to wreck my family and my life. Nobody ever starts out like that, do they? But you've met plenty of people that have ended up down there, haven't you? And if they're honest with themselves and they kind of retrace back, they can probably look back uh, several months or several years when it started as something really small, something really insignificant, but they let the enemy in kind of a foothold. He lied to them about it. He blinded their eyes from the truth. It looked really good to them. Three years later, their life is a mess. And so we have to be aware in our lives personally and in the lives of unbelievers the enemy's going to attack. He's going to try to defeat us. He's going to de- try to destroy us. I promise you one thing. With, with a church like this where the Lord is just working in the hearts of, of the people and, and God's doing incredible things, extraordinary things through this church, the enemy would like nothing more than to destroy us. And he'll do it in all sorts of ways. And so you ought to actively be praying about the Lord defending you, about the enemy being stopped, about being aware of his attacks. All right, so Paul told, open their eyes, help them to see the truth, turn them from the darkness to the light. Now look at verse 18. Let's read through it again. We're going to see what happens, right? Verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from the darkness to the light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may, this is, this is really important, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Truth number three, when we trust in Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. There's nothing you can do to be good enough or or smart enough or give enough money. There's not enough works. It's not a scale that you hope enough good things have happened and you weigh it out in the end. It's all about faith in Christ. And when you do that, when when you trust in Christ, when you listen to Him and believe in Him and allow Him to lead you and repent of your sins, He offers you forgiveness. And the Bible says, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Me. The Lord says, listen, when people trust in Christ and they are forgiven of their sins, when they follow Christ and trust Christ, it leads them to a place of fellowship among those who are sanctified. Pull verse 18 back up again. Let's just look at it. Let's make sure we see it correctly. To open their eyes so they may turn from the darkness to the light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place, an inheritance, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When you receive the forgiveness of sins and you accept Christ, you receive this place among other people who are sanctified. This is the reward in heaven, right? This is eternity for us with Christ. But the Lord says to Paul, listen, you've got to go out. Here's the application for us. Paul, believer, you've got to go out and lead people to do this. We've got to be active in our faith, helping people see the truth, turning people from the darkness to the light, explaining forgiveness of sins, explaining salvation, living a life in such a way that other people see it through us. That was Paul's challenge and commission. It's still our challenge and commission today. 
What if every believer, what if every believer just in this room, let's not even step outside of it, what if every person here right now took this seriously, began to live their lives for Christ, how would the kingdom be impacted? How would LaGrange be impacted? How would True County be impacted? I'm telling you, if we took this seriously and walked out of here and lived our lives like this for the rest of our lives, they would write books about this church decades from now. Because the faithfulness of the Lord does incredible things. When we'll just trust Him and listen to Him and follow Him and allow Him to work, He'll take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. That should be our prayer from the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. It's challenging and convicting, Father. Thank You for Paul. Thank you for using a sinner like him, Father. He, he refers to himself, Lord, as the chief of sinners at other times in the New Testament. Lord, if, if you can use him, you can certainly use me. If you can use him, Father, you can certainly use us, a bunch of ordinary people, Father, to do extraordinary things. We just, we just pray your hand be upon us. We pray that you would allow us to open the eyes of people, Lord, that, that are lost, to turn them out of the darkness into the light, to offer them through faith in Christ forgiveness of sins. And Father, I pray you would just lead us, call us, challenge us, send us out in the world to accomplish these things for your kingdom. We'll be sure to trust you with everything, Father. We ask you to bless us in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. The altar is open. Come and pray about being sin or opening eyes or following the truth of Christ. This is your opportunity to respond as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.